0: Hi, this is Randy Backer from the Guess Who and BTO, and you are listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. Pantheon Podcast presents... Oh, from Hollywood, California. Oh, do... Art of Rock with Caution Friends.
2: He's a lamb.
0: A Pantheon podcast. You can never leave. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Like wind, yeah. Now, let's rip off the shrink wrap and get to the show. Come
3: Greetings all, you are listening to The Art of Rock with Kosh and Friends, a production of Pantheon Podcasts. My name is Kosh and I'm behind the mic at Aftermaster Studios in Hollywood. First, just a bit of news. We are now available on Spotify, Radio.com and most recently Pandora. In fact, if you search, you can find us on about 40 different podcast distribution platforms these days. We are growing and growing. All of us at Pantheon Podcasts, love telling the stories about the great moments of rock and roll. Whatever your taste in music, there is something for everyone. Find it all online at pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you find great podcasts. Expect new announcements here at the top of every new Art of Rock show. Finally, and this is the one that matters most of us, if you enjoy what we do here, then please tell a friend about Pantheon Podcasts. Thank you. Let's get to the show and meet today's guest.
2: That's what you are
3: Unforgettable Though near or far
2: Like a song of
3: love This is Kosh. You know, the art director of many of the classic albums in your collection, coming to you from the couch in the main studio at Aftermaster Studios. We are located within the golden triangle of the famous audio studios in Hollywood. However, the most prestigious and progressive is Aftermaster Studios. I am privileged to be sitting on the aforementioned couch with Pete Dell, the revered veteran of audio recording and mastering. He is the recipient of five Grammy nominations and two Emmy Awards for music and television. He has mastered over 500 album releases, recorded and mixed hundreds more. His clients include Capitol Records, Motown, Universal Records, Quincy Jones and Henry Mancini Archives. This guy has worked with and brought to you the great recordings of Frank Sinatra, Miles Davis, Ray Charles, Elmer Bernstein, The Stray Cats, Take a Breath, Mary J. Blige, Leonard Skinner, Chuck Berry, Dwight Yoakam, Sheryl Crow, Toto, Marilyn Manson, Imagine Dragons. Oh, stop. The list goes on. Now you need to listen to our chat from the couch at Aftermaster Studios in the recording capital of the world, Hollywood. I want to welcome you to the couch at Aftermaster Studios. Your legend precedes you, and I want you, <laughs> to you freak, I want you to explain to me how you got into this racket sorry, business um, and how you've enjoyed yourself forthwith and all the illustrious clients with whom you have worked. So I don't know where to start. Do I start at capital? Where do I start?
1: Well, I actually came to the recording world from having been a, a musician, a performer, and then uh, when I was a when I was a wee sprat, hey. <laughs> uh, <laughs> my brother uh, was a a hi fi enthusiast, and I'm talking back in the fifties. Oh, really? Sixties. Oh, well, those big we league were, electrostatic speakers. Yeah, and things? It was yeah, not electrostatic, and that was a little bit too pricey for oh. us. But uh, oh. we built tube amplifiers and receivers, and built. Uh, you know, big uh, coaxial speaker cabinets with 50 pounds of sand. Oh, in the, the the cement. The yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and uh, so, you know, when I was playing... But uh, in
3: Glorious it, Mono at this point? Or are we now in it, stereo? Absolutely.
1: No, it was it was probably Glorious Mono. Mm-hmm. And then into stereo. But when I uh, got into playing music, I, you know, picked up the guitar well, pre-Beatles on oh. my dad. My first... Uh, Guitar inspiration was probably The Ventures. Oh, see, do you know well, the I was, Ventures, yes, of course. I do. Okay.
3: And yeah, but I was doing Buddy Holly at the time, but you know, oh, yes, but not very yes. well, of
1: course. Speaking of Buddy <laughs> Holly, my dad thought, you know, because I had a, a band with a, several guys like myself wearing glasses, and he said, You should call yourself The Spectacles. Oh, that's too cornballed, but but good, keep it to yourself for your solo record, right? Okay, I daddy. like it. Oh, yes. But uh you know getting into electronics was a help uh mm. you could repair your your bass amp. Yes. I, I started on guitar but quickly moved to bass cuz it mm. seemed that, Oh my favorite yeah. it, Well it seemed that like you could sit home and boom, never work boom, boom, again boom, boom, or you could play boom, boom, the bass and yeah. you could you could be working all the time which mm. uh, I found myself working all the time it was great. Um but when I got to college although I started off in a in a science program believe it or not I wanted to be in the medical program oh you did so i started in pre-med but i had a band and then one day i was in the music building and the store opened. And which college are you in tell me uh state university of new york at albany albany the, the okay cap, the capital the capital of yes. new york state yeah right and uh this was the only place uh i guess in the country at that point this is you know 50 freaking years ago already um, I know, <laughs> terrible, ouch! It? To <laughs> these oh numbers, or uh, you could get an actual uh, bachelor's degree in electronic music composition. Oh, okay. Brent, we had the biggest Moog facility. Anyway, I'm getting a little ahead of oh, myself. Oh,
3: Moogs, Okay, yeah, got but
1: it. Um, I was I was in a band, and I was in the music building this one day, and these uh, the door opened, and I see all these multi-track Scully tape machines. Ah. This is like 1969. Excuse me. What class do I need to take to get in that room? Because yeah. I already knew I, from like my experience with uh, you know building electronic amplifiers and and all that kind of good stuff, I was very interested in uh, learning how to record. Because it had it occurred to me that you know if you understood the medium, you could actually have a hit record, even if you didn't have, you know, the best. Uh, singer or the, maybe oh. even the best song. If you knew how to make a great sounding thing, you know, like a clever, innovative kind of thing. So that, that had kind of gripped me by the, the short hairs, oh. as someone once said. Uh, so when I had taken that complete left and got into the, the music program, uh, when I graduated, all bets were off. I ended up uh, shortly after moving to Boston to pursue a music career where I was playing music at night and working in recording studios by day and kind of got a, a a good combo platter of of experience. And I was there through through most of the 70s. I lived in Boston doing basically that. By night, I was playing in clubs and mm. bars and doing the occasional sessions. I, I did actually have a, a client who, after Arthur Fiedler, do you know that yes, name at yes. all? Okay, well, Arthur Fiedler had been the... Conductor of the Boston Pops oh, yeah. for a number of years. And we did a lot of recording with the Pops. And uh, we also did a, a TV show called uh, Zoom and the Electric Company, both of which were kids' shows for Case. Uh, yeah, Kate. No. No, it can't be Kate. D- WGBH. W- yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the Boston station Oh, yeah. Session. Grievous Bodily Harm. G- yeah, WGBH. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, and so when Fiedler. Uh, passed the baton mm. uh, before John Williams took over. Uh, one of my clients was a, a guest conductor for a number of times on the, on the podium there at uh, Symphony Hall and I got to play with the Pops a number of oh, times wow. and that was Thank fun. God. It was all sorts of good fun there uh, but in 1980 I decided that I'd had my fill of Boston and the opportunities there and moved out here and I wasn't certain which of my two sort of skills, you know, recording or uh, or bass playing would take off. And I was really fortunate that uh, almost, well, I'd only been here a few months and I was playing gigs right away. But uh, I met some guys who er, had a band that were songwriters. And they were doing demos with the singer's husband at this place called Wally Hiders. Oh,
3: yeah, right. Just up a, the street from where we are right now. That's correct. Oh, yes, and it yes, was a, yes, yes.
1: World-renowned place. Wally made his sort of mark in the recording world. I think probably the the well maybe the first one was uh, Johnny Rivers. Oh, really? But Frampton comes alive. We just saw Frampton yes, a couple, okay, last week. Yes, because that's
3: the mobile. That was the whole point of it. Exactly. Yeah. They, yeah, right. He
1: yeah. he showed them that you know if you wheel a truck up to a venue and the, and plug it in and <laughs> and those guys are like cranking it out. You could make you know, a million selling record by recording one, maybe two nights, as mm-hmm. opposed to underwriting a, a band going in for months in the studio. Mm. So the record company said, hmm, well, you're on to something there. Mm-hmm. And in fact, one of the very first things I got to do was uh, record a bunch of uh, nights at uh, the comedy store. Oh, okay. And uh, probably the the most fun thing I got to do in the first couple of weeks or months there was we recorded the USC marching band for Tusk the the, the oh, Fleetwood yeah, Mac? Fleetwood album.
3: Mac, yeah, yeah, right,
1: right. I think it was Tusk, wasn't it? or yes. Rumors, Tusk.
3: Yeah. No, it wasn't rumors. So I worked on rumors.
1: Yeah, well, I said no, not very much on
3: it, but it's my but studio. It, but anyway, yeah, right.
1: but it was it was a a, a fun place. Heiders yeah. did movie scoring. They did episodic TV stuff. They did Frontline Records, you know. Uh, and one of the very first records I got to assist on was an Eddie Money album that had. Legendary Tom Dowd oh, producing yes, and nice. legendary Andy Johns yes. engineering. And this was that era where people would be in the studio for months. Hmm. You know, they'd write the material in front of you in the studio and budgets were big and oh, yeah, no spirits studies. were yeah, but, high as well. Because profits were huge
3: <laughs> as well. So I mean yeah. you know, budgets actually were not really considered very much. You know, as they are now, you know, right? Oh uh, God, it yes. was like you know. Well, they're going to make sixty million dollars out of this. So what's another ten grand? You know. Yeah, just... right.
1: <laughs> but uh, it was it was definitely a furtive time that I moved out here. Um, I I do remember um, actually when I first arrived in the spring of nineteen eighty, there was a big musician strike. Yes, I so, can remember. You know, you'd play a stupid gig, and you'd find Shelley Mann and oh. Lee Rittenour and all these, you know, big name players. You know, just trying to pay the bills, like you yeah, were. Yeah, right. We wouldn't have to pay the mortgage. Yeah. It, it was uh, an interesting time, but it's—I've uh, been very fortunate. You know, after I got my very first job at Wally Hyder's, uh, I shortly went off to uh, Sunset Sound. And then Across direct, the street again. Yeah, <laughs> and then uh, and then I, from '83 to '99, I worked at Capitol Records in the recording mm. studios there. Which so were, you're in the Golden Triangle. There's the well. There, That's what we used. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There, there's quite a, a an attrition of recording studios now, but then True, I mean, yes. my God, there was probably 200 within a five block radius. Yes, exactly. You know, it was insane. How wonderful uh, and uh, uh, fertile a playground of of musicians and it was great i mean it was great working at a place where you know the halls would be filled with musicians and you know you could get so-and-so um at sunset sound or or Mm -hmm. at capital you know somebody else in the the adjacent studio and say hey bring that would you consider playing a solo on this song for us and you know and it stretched all the way out west of village recorders Oh yeah, there's yeah. really not that many on this on the west side, except Village. There yeah. used to be uh, the complex, which George Massenburg had. Oh yes, I had. remember that. Yeah, that was a great place. Yeah, and that's now I think it's Phono Visa. Or, oh really? Yeah, the yeah. TV studio. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Hollywood is still the hotbed. A lot of it is sprawled Well, it's what out. got me here.
3: You know, I mean, apart from in fact, my clients were disappearing from the UK oh, droves <laughs> to record here <laughs> yeah. and then staying here because the weather's so much better. Amen. <laughs> Apart from today. <laughs> Amen, yeah. It's so, a- yeah, it was, it was a total magnet for me. And also the West Coast artists were out here too. So it was like, at this point, I think LA and Hollywood was just like a big, big draw, you know. And
1: And of course all the
3: people you're bumping into and working with all become friends and it's, it's really great, you know.
1: I you know i I have to admit uh, i I was probably here ten years or something before I met my first native Los angelino. Yeah, right. everybody yes. was a transplant, and yes. like to myself, you know, it was like, man, if I grew up where the weather was this nice, I don't know what would have become of me. No, I see you know' cause I grew up in Rochester, New York, where oh, it can be very chilly or <laughs> the joke is that there are only three seasons, June, July, and winter. <laughs> yeah. those are the three seasons. And because of that, the you know, Kodak you, country,
3: yes, <laughs> absolutely.
1: But because of the cold, you stayed inside and practiced. Ah, you know, you really you got craft, your craft together because yeah. you were f- going to freeze your tukis off if you were outside. Yeah, most of the year, uh, which you couldn't But say the here.
3: transition of uh, coming to you know the laid-back West Coast, um, how
1: did that sort of affect your musicianship? Well, I mean, when I first arrived, you know, you try to. Because I was I was used to working with really good musicians, accomplished musicians, and uh, getting strangely enough paid. Oh, how (laughs) unusual! It was a a concept (laughs) that was sort of foreign to a lot of the people that uh, I I came out here and and met through the union, say, and you know, like people Mm. who were aspiring to put a band together and get a record deal, Mm. which was, you know. The the big brass ring back in those days, unlike now, nobody really cares about a record deal because the record companies don't really control things like no. they once did. No, but uh, you know, people would have a day job so that they could, you know, practice at night. Oh, night! And it's probably like, yes. No, right. no, no, no. You got that bass backwards. Yes. I I'll have a, a a day job so that I can you know, or I'll rehearse during the day so I can play at night. Yeah. Or you know, earn a living with my bass strapped over my, mm-hmm. my shoulder, as that,
3: opposed to the laundromat. Yeah, right. yeah, I don't
1: want yeah. to work at Sears and practice <laughs> your songs at night. That's crazy. <laughs> and uh, now that we're talking about money, I remember one of the the names that you'd probably recognize is Weird Al Yankovic. Oh, of course, you yes, know. Yes, yes. I mean, his material is clever lyrically, but, but musically, it's, know, it's it's top <laughs> more. It's top forty. It's just cover yes, tunes, right? Thinks. And, but know, it's funny. I, yes. But I auditioned with him and I had the audacity to ask, well, what's what's the pay situation? Mm. Or, well, you know, it's like you should be thrilled just you to work honored. with him. You should be yes, right. I've it, like, had no, no, a no, 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 no. before. yes. This is like, <laughs> the music is crap. You know, I mean, I'm not getting any... I'm not getting Woody uh, by playing this material. Uh, it would be nice to have some compensation. Yes, you know? right. And there were... There were a lot of clubs. I don't know if it's still the same now, but, you know, where you had to pay to play. Well,
3: yes, I do know that. Yeah, which is, you had to, you had to which rent is where the, the phrase PA. comes from. You know, yeah, so right. You had to
1: rent the PA, guarantee <laughs> so many <somebody laughs> of your friends would come in and drink and all that. And it's like, wait a minute. I'm trying to earn a living over yeah, here. Yeah, right. But so it, well, was, it
3: was considered an honor to play at the troupe, you know.
1: Well, places Ruxy, that actually yeah. had, you know, clientele that uh, could actually do something for you, uh-huh. like where they had uh, sort of uh, music industry folks who would wander through with some regularity. That would be a little bit of enticement, mm. but just to play mm. a toilet.
3: <laughs> <And> some, <laughs> you know, and like, some of the I'd toilets rather, were disgusting. Yeah, was, yeah,
1: <laughs> I'd rather stay home.
3: So anyway, what I've got to do, I've got to steer you in a direction now. Yes, Because I want to talk to you very, very um, in-depth about the capital years and the great, you know, Miles Davis, Eddie Money, all the people that you work with, and um, the uh, your approach and the sort of reactions that you had uh, with um, your clientele, who apparently seemed to be more than clients. They seemed to be people you could sort of bounce back and forward. I mean, you've mentioned Tom Dowd, who's a great little guy. Oh. Um, Fantastic man. And it's saved me an embarrassing situation with Rod Stewart because he got between us when we were going to have a fight. I'm not kidding. Yeah, yeah, because Rod, <laughs> was, Rod was buff, you know, and he could have just broken my jaw. But Tom got in the way um, and sort of put us apart and the language got really atrocious. I can't even use it. Just, wow. Yeah. Uh, you know, C-word and things were flying around. <laughs> uh, but little Tom Dow was just like... sort of. A <laughs> Scrappy Too little funny. fucker. <laughs> Too funny. <laughs> anyway, no, so I need to know how you worked with people like Tom Dowd and how how did you work with, like, Miles Davis? Because he's not the easiest person,
1: was well, not the easiest person in the world. To work well, with. maybe we should take him in historical sequence. Because okay. I, yes, yes. I worked with Tom and, like you say, he was not only a gentleman, but he was the most democratic producer you, you'd ever... Want to be around? I mean, he was just so fantastic uh, with people, mm. as well as technology and and music. For God's sakes! Mm. But I remember he oh,
3: did Aretha Franklin and da, 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 oh yeah, exactly.
1: And like I, I, I had intimated, I had just moved here from Boston and and had worked on a lot of jazz and had played a bunch of jazz and whatnot. And and Tom only had done two John Coltrane records, but which two? Yes, Giant Steps <laughs> and The Love Supreme, arguably. Maybe the two biggest Best. jazz records of all time. Yes. You know, I mean, just ridiculous. And I remember asking him a little bit about those recordings, and and you know, back then we would we would edit a lot of the performances on tape with a uh, razor blade. With well, a razor blade, <laughs> but but he was used to doing it with with scissors. Oh, and was talking about with how with Coltrane, Coltrane would say, "Man, you know, I really wish I'd played this phrase over here and this idea over there," and oh, and Tom would. Move it get around. Scissors it. Out. Yeah, but in other words, that these recordings that everybody like thought were just, you know, valhalla of jazz, uh, that they were actually well not necessarily contrived a la milly vanilli or some you know. Oh God, deceptive yes, something or other, yeah. but they were artistically created, you know, some some of it to an extent was done after the fact. It wasn't all like off you know, wasn't totally improvised the way you, one would think of with a jazz record, right? And I I said to Tom, I said, man, I know lots of guys back in Boston who would slit their freaking throats to hear you say that. Mm-hmm. You know, that this was, you know, we, we improved the performance. We improved, yes. improved the improvisation. And improved, you know, the, the arc of the composition. But I just have this image of snippings you know,
3: snipping, you know, this two-inch
1: sort of Ampex tape. Scissors. Well, you probably didn't do the use the scissors oh, we, on two-inch. Yeah. <laughs> but I always asked him, like, if you're cutting all this stuff together, how, how would you make sure the angle was the same? Oh, yes, it's, it's the oblique and,
3: angle. Yes. Yeah,
1: he said you'd turn your wrist over all the way until it couldn't go any further, and that was your standard cut. So Good that God. would be fixed. In other words, if you did it like this, there's so much wiggle room that <laughs> yes. you know. And so I for your listeners who can't you see me, there, but, <laughs> but if you if you're using your right hand and you turn it all the way right, counter right, okay, I'm done following you. Yeah, that you're going to find a spot where it's locked. and yes. that's the angle that you use and each and every time. And then you have the consistency. <gasps> okay, that's for each each cut. And then you know that uh, you know you're not just going to go. Oops! There's a big gaping. You know, eighth inch gap in right, yeah. between the top and the bottom. So was this mixed
3: down on quarter inch tape or something? Well, back yeah, and back yeah. in this
1: era, where, you know, this stuff was live. Yes, of course. Was live to quarter inch tape or maybe three track half yeah. inch tape, depending on what era. But yeah, but when I worked with them, uh, I worked with them on the Seti Money" record. I worked for a little bit on a Kenny Loggins record, and mm-hmm. there's an interesting story about that where. We have been flogging the poor band together. All I'm the, trying to get a great take of the song, This Is It mm-hmm. At Anyway, uh so Tom got fed up with you know, just beating a dead horse and sent them off to dinner and had me bring in a second twenty four track and he took the razor blade now mm-hmm. and he cut up these sections and he made the drum goo ba doom ba you know. Like with the upbeat, with yeah. the accent, with the symbols and everything, and we literally we cut the tape to make the drum groove. And when the band came back, I had transferred this drum groove over to a second thing, and we had the band overdub to this field Great. that yeah. Tom had done with the razor blade. Good Lord! And that's the hit record. Wow! Uh, anoth- <laughs> that's another an amazing story. Oh, another another was- amazing one that uh, there's. Many, but the one that jumps out and I always just I'm just blown away by uh, was that we were doing rough mixes for the record label. I think this was the Eddie Money record, and he found himself in a studio at Wally Hyder's that he did not like the monitors, did not like the speakers. You know, mm. and the speakers are arguably the most important tool we as engineers have because they they either lie to you or they tell you the truth. Mm. So he felt they were not friendly enough for him. So to make his point. He made these rough mixes, and not just one song. I mean, like a number of them probably, however we we had done at that point for the label to listen to, with the speakers off. Oh, my God. Right? So we have a, a, a counter that displays how many minutes and seconds you are on the tape machine, mm-hmm. and you can reset that number. And then he had his book with a chart for each and every song with numbers above the bars. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. So without hearing and just looking at the tape counter and looking at his chart, he could tell where he was within the song, right? Got it. And so, I mean, when I say it's a rough mix, I mean, I don't mean it's a static where you just set everybody at a certain level and pan it out and hit play and you're done. No. He's got vocal rise. He's got echo bombs. <laughs> he's got all, you know, all this crazy stuff going on within his mix. And then you you roll the tape back. Okay, we'll turn the speakers on and listen to it. And you're you're just blown away wow. with not only the balance, but that he could precisely know where to ride the voice, Good or God. to do the echo bomb on the guitar solo and all this, just to make a point. Mm. I don't need these damn speakers. I know where I'm at, and you know, wow, they're supposed to work for me, but I don't trust them. So fuck them. Oh, excuse <laughs> me. No, it's all right. We're live. Um, <laughs> so that was just you know such an eye opener. Was so great.
3: Well, that's what? sort of perfection. In, um, I mean, it's like Linda Ronstadt. kind of it, it has that sort of ability. To oh, listen. really? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, she was. As I've seen her producing, I've seen her produce David Lindley and whatever else, and I've just seen her working. And, and literally, I've seen those the speakers not there. You know, and she's got cans on. Ah. Uh, you know, but she doesn't trust the speakers. Yeah. Or didn't.
1: <laughs> well, there's, there's there are times when that's probably the right thing to be doing. Yeah. But if you want to talk about Miles Davis, I, I certainly do. I was doing a record with the late great producer Tommy Lapuma, yes. who's just done so many spectacular records. What a sweet, sweet man, and we'll miss him dearly. He just passed away last, no, it's maybe two years ago. Two already. years ago, yeah. But uh, we were working on a George Benson record, right? And yeah, he says, um, oh, yeah, on Tuesday, we're going to do a date with Miles. And I'm thinking, Miles who? Standish? <laughs> Miles Copeland? He, he, you can't possibly mean Miles but Yeah, Miles Standish. Yeah, yeah. Okay, then. you know, oh, and I had heard that he doesn't like white people particularly. Yeah, I've noticed I'm that. I'm pretty yes. bloody white, yes. uh, <laughs> especially being from Rochester, New York. That's yes, right. At any rate, so... Uh, he comes in uh, and it's just he. It, it there's no entourage or oh, really? anything. No. Uh, he was you know we're very intimidated and he he comes in he comes into the studio and he takes off his jacket and he looks at La Puma and myself and he goes, I usually get a round of applause when I do this. And <laughs> oh, I he serious? Oh, you, you know, he's pulling our chain. Of course is what yes. he's doing but
3: it's funny. Uh, yes.
1: Oh my God, he was he was just a, an incredible, incredible dream to work with. Probably the the high point of, of working with him was, uh, going out to dinner, oh. with La Puma and he and, uh, the stories you can imagine yes were like just out, yeah. outstanding, but probably the best mistake I ever made in my life was on that record was day one. Uh, Tommy was exactly which which, which record is this? Uh, the Tutu. Okay, album. okay, okay right, this is like his first record. And for, I
3: have to ask you the dates now because
1: uh, that was nineteen eighty six. Amir, because yeah, I'm forever being told I didn't
3: get dates. So, well, this was okay.
1: February, okay. strangely okay. enough, <laughs> of nineteen eighty six, and uh, I had just come off doing a record with uh, Steve Vai and. Uh, david lee roth mm-hmm. and then the very next thing i'm thrown into this good god that's a big switch this is, well this was the best thing about working at Capitol. believe okay. me you know because the variety was just fantastic you never got pigeonholed for doing just one style oh, of music right. it was mm. a spectacular opportunity to work there but working with miles uh tommy lapuma as i say was the executive producer but the musical producer if you will was a guy named marcus miller who you probably have heard of too yeah. a spectacular musician and he had been playing in Miles' live band for, for a while, and they had a great rapport. And we were doing this one track that one day. That was the, yeah. the one day that Tommy Lapumi said, yeah, we're going to work with him Tuesday. Okay, so on Tuesday, Marcus had a cassette. Remember cassettes? Yes, I do yeah, indeed. And so he I had have some one in on th- my car <laughs> <laughs> He had a bunch more music that he wanted Miles to hear and take home a, a, a cassette of one Song on this cassette, right? You know, I'm I'm working, I don't have an assistant, I'm trying to keep the ship afloat here. So, I wasn't policing what went on with his cassette, and a whole bunch of music went on his cassette to take home that evening. Miles liked all of it, so instead of like just working with him on Tuesday, I got like 16 days because I screwed up his cassette. Oh, nice is that story. Not the best? <laughs> yes, oh, no, seriously, that was. I mean, if you're so going you to, I can get mildly fucked up, but I, 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 I certainly made it made a good thing for myself. Totally, totally, oh, man. <laughs> that's lovely. And some of the record was done in New York, and you'd like to think.
3: In February. I don't know. What's this just going on.
1: All right, okay, it never was. Mind. <laughs> uh, but I
3: just imagine we were in sunny California at the time. <laughs> right. I was going to say that you know, the,
1: the New York stuff happened you know weeks or months after the stuff that that I got to work oh. on. Uh, and you know, being a New Yorker, you'd think that you know the, uh, the New York jazz stuff mm. is going to be hipper and all that. Yeah, but right. I got to say, I really think that the uh, the LA stuff is arguably better. And maybe it's because it was first and mm. it was the freshest. Yeah. Uh, working with Marcus Miller, uh, Miles would say, you know, Marcus was into the, like everything is like paper mache and everything is. Malleable, and movable, like I was saying before, right, with yeah. uh, with Coltrane, and uh, which and, I didn't
3: actually realize because the jazz is supposed to be, you know, improvised. Yeah, I didn't realize if,
1: if you can make it better. Yes, I understand. Not, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it obviously know, it's going to be better. <laughs> yeah. So Miles would say to man, put it wherever you want. Oh really? Yeah. And uh, so we did, we did a lot of sampling, and there were there were like the very first. Probably the very first drum machine usage, maybe in jazz anyway, was on that record, I would think, where there was a thing that Roger Nichols, who's a famous engineer here in town, who's unfortunately passed a number of years ago, but he did all the Steely Dan records, well, oh, okay. maybe not all of them, but a lot mm-hmm. of them, he developed a, uh, a, a drum sample Machine that you could trigger externally and replace like your snare or your kick uh, or even cymbals with this thing. He so had carts. so This is how arcane this thing was. Wow. But it was called Wendell and Wendell Jr. Strangely, like my wife's name is Wendell. Oh, really? Oh, it's yeah. lovely. <laughs> and uh, uh, Wendell is uh, still around. I mean, you can still uh, hear them. But anyway, any rate, on, on uh, a number of the tracks on this Tutu album, uh, we had Marcus out there we had the, the machine doing, uh, like, the kick and the snare, and mm. I, M- Marcus would be out there doing, like, the drag strokes. Oh. Brrr, brrr, you know, to make it sound like a live drummer. And everything. Right. Okay, and you've got to admit, if you go listen to that record, you, it really has a fabulous feel. It doesn't sound remotely like machines mm. at all. Oh, good. some really beautiful stuff.
3: So tell me um, about the Frank Sinatra sessions that you were.
1: Uh... Yeah. Um, Frank Sinatra... Was going to do what became the duets mm-hmm. records at Capitol. This is like nineteen ninety one. Can I interrupt? And
3: this is where Linda Ronstadt appeared on that album. She did a duets with. She did a duets album, and one of those was with Frank Sinatra. Yeah, there so it was, was taken out of the session probably.
1: I, I I don't recall that being on the the Frank record. Ah, okay. But that was the inducement, I think, for all the duet ah. people. They didn't get paid, but they got the right to use. <laughs> Their track, I could be wrong, but that no, was no, my sounds, understanding. It sounds
3: pretty accurate. Yeah. <laughs> it
1: sure does, especially with with capital EMI being uh, behind the uh, purse strings, right? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, this was his first record after leaving Columbia. Columbia, yeah. Uh, and, you know, he had been on Reprise, and then he went to Columbia, and then... Well, Reprise was his own label, wasn't it? Yeah, well, Warner Brothers made a label for ah, him. Oh, okay, got it. Yeah. Or reprise, or whatever. We going to like, pronounce it. Yes, sir. You say tomato. <laughs> I say yeah. <laughs> uh, but at any rate, so this was the first record for for Capital EMI, and you know their their concept was I know, let's bring uh, Frank to a, a whole new audience and actually bring some money into the picture by sell, by pairing him up. With people who actually sell records. Oh, God. You know, so like they they paired them up with Bono and, um, you know, a whole bunch of people. And none of the duets did we do at Capitol. We just did Frank with the band. Okay. And because Frank, you know, wasn't going to give you oodles of of takes and he's going to sing live, um, we got Frank's rhythm section. We got Greg Fields and Chuck Berghoffer, who were his, as they say, bass and drums, uh, to to play on the recordings, because we're not going to get a click track. No. Uh, and we hope that having them, who would already know the tempo that that uh, Frank likes to do it, if we were fortunate enough to get him to do uh, a couple of takes, they would line up. Hmm. You know? Uh <laughs> And in the hope, okay, so this is Phil Ramone producing the record Mm -hmm. and L. Schmidt engineering. So you know you got a hell of a start, yes, right? right. And Pat Williams was the uh, arranger and conductor. And, you know, my God, I mean, so uh, on our side of the glass, the the talent was tantamount to the other side of the glass pretty much. You know, those guys were just the top of their game. Uh, So in the hope of getting the ability to... Control what you got because you weren't going to get a lot of takes out of Frank. We built a hut <laughs> and, which, which had a big tether with air conditioning and glass on all sides. And so we could put him in the middle of the orchestra and he could see and be seen, but we would have his sound isolated so we could mix and match takes, hopefully. Mm-hmm. You know, if we got the great take from the band that we could, you know, take. So, anyway, <laughs> the first night, Uh, seven o'clock Don beat with the band. And so we got the band ahead early, you know, and got everybody in their places. And, you know, we had tested all the mics and we were all ready to rock, you know, all the headphones, all the, everything was, all the T's were crosses and crossed and the I's were dotted and everything for Frank. And now Frank shows up and he comes down the hall, the studio way. And you know, oh, there's, that there's long corridor. The, 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 yeah, <laughs> there's a literally story. you know like seventy musicians in their oh, seats oh and, a, and a whole bunch of people in the halls and control room, you know, the support crew and everything. And he, and he says, "Why am I here? Like, I I've sung all these before because he sees the of music. Yes, right. And we're all thinking, what the hell is going to happen now? You know." Uh, Phil, you better go out there and talk no, to him, <laughs> you know, <laughs> put out this fire like now because, you know, I think Frank was 77 at that yes. point. And I hate, hate to impugn a number that I'm going to reach not too far, yeah. not too far well, away, right? You know? yes. But, uh, he was, he was a confused lad at that point. Know, he, else, he... He, he would go in and out, I would have to say. And vocally, he, he he was pretty strong still. But well, he had that phrasing thing going on. Always. Right? Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so there was this potential landmine here in, in front of Phil Ramon. <laughs> and I'm like, what are, is this going to fall apart before we even start? <laughs> and you know, Phil explained, well, yeah, you've done it before, but not for capital M-E-M-I. That's what, uh, why we're here and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, it, it kind of fizzled. And Frank left. Oh, no. That first night. So we're not sending the band home. So we rehearse all the uh, all the arrangements with mm. the band. We're recording everything, and, and the band is just ridiculous, mm. right? And uh, I can't remember the the song, but there was one song that uh, Tom Scott played this spectacular solo on. And <laughs> when the record comes out, it ain't Tom Scott; it's Kenny G. Oh no! Yeah. Because the record company said, well, Kenny G will sell some records. Oh,
0: my God. <laughs> that is was, it was that, those type of decisions.
1: So at uh, any rate, we re- we recorded all, this, all these numbers with the band. And the hope was that the next day, instead of the 7 p.m. downbeat with the band, we would get Frank to come in in the afternoon and overdub uh-huh. his voice to the tracks we cut in his absence mm. that evening. So we got him in the booth. I mean, uh, you know, the big air-conditioned hut, yes, right? The box in the middle of the band. <laughs> and he's got a teleprompter. And if I do I use the printed music or do I use the teleprompter? And if I use the teleprompter, is it white on black or is it black on white, okay. right? And do I use single-sided headphones or, or duals? And which of these four or five mics, you know, these $20,000 each vintage, <laughs> ridiculous, wonderful mics and all the so- you know, Frank Frank lets you know pretty quick when he once we figured out what we were going to use hmm. and all that. You could tell he it was really uninspired, right? Uh, yeah. You could tell he's telling you, "I don't fucking want to do this." Uh, you know, overdub. Uh. Uh, this is not what I signed up for, right? So we we get him to overdub, on, you know, summer or all I don't remember. And then at seven o'clock, the band starts showing. Well, well, before seven, the the band starts showing up. And, you know, he, he goes out, and, you know, a lot of these guys know him, mm-hmm. and, you know, everybody's sucking up to him and everything. And he says, Well, I can't be in there. Meaning, the booth he we've just been booth, in yeah. all afternoon that yeah. we're turning over is a black and white? Is a the yeah, singles yeah. or the duels yeah, or what? Yeah. I mean, yeah. All these rocks we've been turning <laughs> over. No, 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 I got to be out here with the band. So what do we end up using? A handheld wireless no, SM87 with floor wedges. <laughs> Right next to the pianist, Bill Miller, who had been his accompanist yeah, for, right. you know, 40, 50 years or whatever. Uh, and that's the record. Good God. Right? Wow. Uh, but the other performers and, but, had to phone you, their
3: stuff in, right? Well, point. we
1: did it over EdNet. Do you know what EdNet is? No, for your, uh, it, It's a fiber optic network. Oh, okay. And this is, again, you know, with the internet uh, being in its infancy or even, I don't know if in 91, we even really had the internet yet.
3: I don't think, well, maybe we did. But
1: anyway, it was fiber optics, and we could do remote recording. Ah. You know? And at any rate, so during the recording, if we didn't get a good line from Frank, I guess that's what the overdub artist the yeah. duet artist would have to artist sing. Duet artists would do. You know? Because they didn't know who was going to be the duet artist on any of these songs oh, yet.
3: Oh, this hasn't been, oh, okay. No. Oh.
1: It was all kind of, But we may get. I don't know if that was because they didn't have the 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 time. You know, like they, maybe they only had to and win. And all the that. other
3: artists are on other labels. Oh, not? yeah, but that, that was. That was not a problem.
1: There was a lot of competition. Yeah. And I remember, like Barbara Streisand, there was a lot of competition and she won, if you will. Uh, I've Got a Crush on You, mm. that song, right? Okay. And there's a great thing on, on that one. If you listen to the record, she, she, to foster the illusion that they were literally standing next to one another when they were singing, she goes, I've Got a Crush on You, Francis. <laughs> you know, like they're standing yes. next to each other. Right. So, when we got done with most of the recording, uh, Frank, you know, had a couple of homes probably out in Palm Springs. So, Phil and one of the capital engineers, uh, at the time Charlie Picari, they drove out to to Palm Springs with a little recorder and said, Frank, Frank, come on, play with it, work with us here. We, we got to have you sing. Barbara, right? <laughs> Fuck no, I'm not singing it, Barbara. Thank you. So we took him saying Barbara. Oh, no. Well and we fantastic. pitched it and stretched it and flew it in. And so he says, Barbara. And, and, and I've got a crush on you. Barbara Good is God. on the record.
3: Good grief. I've got to check yeah. this record out because I is, didn't you know, realize that.
1: Reasonably high technology for 1991, yeah.
3: right? My God.
1: But, uh, th- yeah, there there was some wacky stuff that went on. But like I say, we didn't really do any of the uh, – Duet people. Mm. They were all done over Ednet. Ah, you know, okay. like Bono was in Dublin, and uh, people were in New York or wherever the hell they were.
3: Yeah! Wow! Yeah, that's amazing. I didn't realize that. Though, that yeah, and, you no, know, I know. Phil Ramone
1: was always on the cutting edge. Mm. I mean, he would always—he was an amazing guy. Mm. An amazing guy. I first met Phil Ramone in 1964. Good grief. Because growing up in Rochester, New York, there's the Eastman School of Music, world-renowned right, right. music school there, and they had a summer camp for arrangers, at the end of which they would have the arrangers holiday. They'd have a series of performances where you'd get to hear all the writing of these guys who were at the... And it was amazing, right? And they would be recording it, strangely enough. And as I told you earlier, I was bitten by the bug. This mm. is, I was probably 14 then. And uh, I see this guy, you know, up there moving the microphones around the, around the band. Mm. You know, it's a big band and orchestra and stuff. And you know, I went to a number of these things. I got to find out who that guy. Is. I got to, you know, because I I want to do that. I, I would yeah. love to to learn more of that. Yeah. And it was this guy named Phil Ramon. Right. That, that was amazing. Mm. And you know, I, I didn't I didn't register it didn't mean anything to me that name or anything. But then I met him probably. 10, 15 years later. And the legend was born. The legend is born. Yeah. A&R recording in New York. Yeah. Oh, okay. He's the R.
3: Yes. Oh, really? I did not know that. Right. Oh. That is like... It's like A&M here. It took me a long time to find out. Who <laughs> <laughs> okay, look. Where do we go from here? Because this is just amazing. Uh, any stories about Carly Simon?
1: Well, my one story about Carly Simon is I was working on a record with her... I mean, I shouldn't say with her. Hmm. I was working on a record of hers. She was physically not there. And what were we doing? We were recording John Travolta.
3: Ah, oh, okay. It says <laughs> it on my notes. I just found it. Yes, okay. Yeah. Yes. <laughs>
1: okay. And John Travolta was expecting her to be there. So he okay. brings in this, like, you know, ridiculously expensive, beautiful, long stemmed dozen roses mm-hmm. from probably the best florist in Beverly Hills and blah, blah, blah. She wasn't there. So we got him to do his thing, which was, you know, harmonize on a couple of mm-hmm. pre-recorded tracks of, up with her, or with her voice, that is. Mm-hmm. And he leaves. And <laughs> the day before, I had been a part of a, uh, a, a shoot for a commercial at Capitol, and where they used the recording studio and, you know, brought these actors in and staged them as if they were performers in in doing a session it was for lucky strike or something all right and in in the shot in the shot they had me in the control room you know like either you know patching it you know know, know, (laughs) totally stupid but the girl who was the uh director or coordinator of the shoot was very hot Hmm. and (laughs) so i arranged you know at you know it was the next day after the shoot that uh, I had made you know I got her number or something and my bet and it, it, <laughs> <laughs> but at the end of, of the Carly Simon thing, uh, there were these left behind dozen roses. Oh, there
3: we go, because okay. he forgot
1: them, right? <laughs> so I had one of the runners take her over to the hotel that this girl was staying at, yeah. So I got over, <laughs> 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 but the next day <laughs> Travolta's. Or his people or somebody called oh, can we, we, we forgot those roses. Can we get, Oh, I said, I, I think the housekeeping people I threw them they've, out. I think they've wilted. Yeah, is, I'm sorry. <laughs> swinging going a mess, you're too late. Oh, it's lovely. <laughs> but impressive. I got some use out of them anyway. Yeah.
3: All right. Now I'm going to jump on you with the Beach Boys,
1: Brian Wilson. Oh, man. Now
3: this has got to be good.
1: Well, he, he was quite amazing. But the first, I think maybe the only time I got to work Well, no, I was a couple of times. Remember, there was a they had a hit with a song called Kokomo. Yes, and we were working on a movie, uh, Tequila Sunrise. Yep, that was the name of the movie, and Kokomo was in the soundtrack already of this movie. And the Beach Boys were trying desperately. Maybe it was the label. Maybe I don't know. But they had another song that they wanted to finish. Hurry up and get recorded. And and hopefully, also get it on the soundtrack album of this movie that looked like it was, you know, gold a gold mine. They were, mm-hmm. Their career was kind of in a slump at that moment. Can you give me
3: a date on this? Uh, oh, well, Mid okay. that that's, that's 80s. Okay. That's vague enough. That's, <laughs> <right>. a,
1: that's <laughs> as close as I could guess. Never mind. Uh, we we could grab our phones and get eyeing and You IMDb check it out No, no out The, the, the date audience of that. would no doubt
3: be phoning us in anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's,
1: it's, but. Uh, <laughs> They were uh, they were tough to work with, and this was back when uh, Brian was in the care of that guy, Doctor. Oh, Landy, God, yes, right. Yeah. And uh, it it was there was a dynamic where they nobody could stand to be in the room with Mike Love, you know, you know, all bands go through that yes, period well. where you know they're all angry at each other or certain camps form and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that wasn't a particularly great thing, and I did. We did the song was called "Don't Fight the Sea." it did not make that record but some years later I saw it on some compilation oh really yeah so yeah. It, it did see the light of the day at some point yeah uh but I got to work on one of Brian's solo records okay and I mean it's not surprising probably to anybody that that he was among the brightest and the most mm-hmm. brilliant musical guys of of American pop music, and certainly in that band he was musically the leader. Mm. I mean, even in his most unavailable, you know, philosophically or emotionally or intellectually, you know, he was under the care of Dr. Landy in whatever period of that of, of his life that was. Anyway, so when he was under whatever medication he was on with Dr. Landy, if he drank Perrier it would excite it and he'd get a buzz. Oh my God. So he was constantly drinking, drinking Perrier, Perrier. <laughs> right? Uh, uh, so when you're recording him singing, there was a lot of belching and burping going on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was so funny. But he was still a, an incredible talent. So but, you had
3: this amazing fucking career, haven't you? I mean, well, yeah, I
1: mean, I, and, and among the, the for, most fortunate things, I mean, you know... Having been a musician, I think people liked being around a guy who could contribute musically. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just, you know, a lump on a, a log. I just got a phone call the other day with a, from a guy who I used to work with, again, a million years ago, Jimmy Messina. Oh, right, yes. And how I met him, now, I when I first started at Sunset Sound, I was a tech, you know, like working in the shop, and mm-hmm. repairing stuff and whatnot, because, again, in my early years with my brother I learned about electronics and all that as you know almost simultaneous with the music so I'm working in the shop while Jimmy's making a record and in the other room I hear him going over and over and over again in these same freaking eight bar trying to get out of a solo oh. and at the end of the solo no. it modulates okay. right and you know when you get you know sometimes when you're working on something it doesn't matter what it is music or Anything, you know, you get myopic and you you have a brain freeze and you can't see something that somebody oh, who does at yeah. a little distance can see. So I I lead the shop and I go into the control. Do you mind if I say something? Do mind you know, if I... Say- and how old are you? <laughs> no, no. I'm I'm oh, in my thirties. Oh, this you're mature. Point. Okay. Well, I'm I'm not on his session. He doesn't know me. And I said, <laughs> if you if you you know the downbeat of the second bar in this transition. If you made that a I half step up,
3: I wish everybody could see you pointing your fingers and
1: no, but I'm moving imaginary <laughs> <the legendary laughs> faders. No, but I'm, I'm saying I'm, I'm specifying that if you raise this one note at the beginning of the second bar, the transition will work because was, it was because it was modulating in the mm-hmm. middle of this line that he was mm-hmm. playing. Oh, okay, I go in. and he did it. You know, it solved his problem. Good God. Yeah. But you know, here's some asshole who comes yeah, right. out from the shop. You know, not who the fuck is this guy? You know, and he t- oh, it worked.
3: It worked. Well, thank you very so, much. So you know, <laughs> I'm saying if
1: you have, if you can contribute musically, a lot of times. Gotcha. That's the point. There, yeah. There's yeah. A, there's a room for you at the table, yeah. if you will. And I was always fortunate in that way to have uh, uh, a few doors open because I was musical. Do as you have well. Do you
3: have perfect pitch?
1: I have a much better thing. I have relative perfect pitch.
3: Okay, you have to explain that to everybody.
1: Relative perfect pitch means once once I hear one note, I can give you every other possible note in tune oh. given to that. But having perfect pitch, like when you hear... Uh, okay, having perfect pitch is a, is a curse. I know, I've heard. Uh, yes. Because, <clears throat> okay, you think A is always 440. Well, no. In, in Europe, AS four forty four. So everything can be is gonna be painfully sharp if you hear a recording from over there. When I was in music school, let's say you were having symphony class, there'd be a bunch of assigned pieces and they're all in specific keys. And if you have perfect pitch, when we drop the needle on the record, you'd say, Well that's that's D natural. There was only one thing we were assigned that's in D, so it's gotta be this, this, mm-hmm. and so to fuck with those people, they'd very speed the turntable a little oh, bit. wow. Okay. You know, so... Watch the so, strobe slightly. Yeah, so is it? Well, we didn't have anything in C sharp. <clears throat> what? what? I have no idea. You know what I mean? Yeah. So they, they'd mess with you that way. But when you're doing... If you're making records for a living mm-hmm. and you're overdubbing, you know you don't know what that piano was tuned to or this oh, track was yeah. tuned to. you yeah. got to have the ears. Okay, well, okay, that's why tuners are kind of a joke, I think. Okay. Unless you can, you know, offset the tuner to the track.
3: Oh, I see what you're saying.
1: You need to be able to hear what is uh, the thing. Now, you know, now that i find myself a mastering engineer and I can no longer do anything about stuff that's out of tune, sometimes it drives me freaking bit. Well, nuts. I my very next
3: question, which you just
1: answered. I, I, <laughs> I was mastering a, a great record recently. I mean, just a spectacular amount of musicianship on it and the piano in the solo is in tune Mm. but this the piano when it plays the melody is about seven cents sharp Mm. drives me around the bend Mm. just drives me nuts and you know that it's always either done at two different studios Mm. or on two different days Oh, is that when well, I
3: hear you throwing things against the wall? That's exactly right. Yes, yeah, because <laughs> Pete's studio is right next door to my
1: studio. <laughs> that's true, and the walls aren't that thick, are no. they?
3: I've got to thank you for coming and doing this for us today, because I think you've just, um, you've just told people a lot, a lot of stories, which I've never right. heard before, yeah. well, I'll and take I'm all sure the, you've got more. I'll you take all the credit, one.
1: but none of the blame. No, no, right, that, that's what we all do, dear.
3: <laughs> Pete, thank you. Thank you, man. We're shaking hands. We're shaking hands. This was a wonderful time on the couch, live or almost live, from aftermaster students.
0: I've got a crush on you. Sweetie pie All the day and night time Hear me sigh I never had the least notion That I could fall with so much emotion
3: You have been listening to the baritone voice of revered veteran of audio recording and mastering, Pete Dell. Without his incisive and precise work, we would not be enjoying the pop, rock and jazz and classical recordings that we all treasure today. We learn just how much goes into making a perfect record. Thank you, Pete. That was amazing. This has been Art of Rock, a production of Pantheon Podcasts. I am online at koshdesign.blogspot.com and you can find me on Facebook at Kosh Art. From the couch in the Aftermaster main studio in Hollywood, this is Kosh.
2: Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort.
0: You can too. Go
2: to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can
0: help. Art of Rock is written by Kosh and produced by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson. All quotes performed by actors unless noted.